How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shot. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research, so you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So then the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. It's just the two of us again this week, Gary. Just the two of us. Still no Todd. Uh, Can't say I blame him. Honestly, I was just thinking as I was was saying the intro, I was like, is this anybody's favorite movie? This is a lot of people's favorite movie, Gary. Some people are experts on... Hodorowski. They certainly are. Well, Lot, you know. Lots of people. We've I mean, we've been teasing this series for a while on social media and stuff, and we've gotten quite a response. There are a lot of big Jodorowsky fans out there, so I would I would say this is definitely a lot of people's favorite movie. Well, I'll try to be nicer about my attitude then. <laughs> gotta, have, gotta have a positive attitude, Gary. Always bring a positive attitude into everything. I, I it it starts off strong here, but I got I gotta say, I mean, I did not hate this one or anything. Uh, okay. so you know, it's okay, it's good. gonna be it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be <laughs> fine. So uh yeah, so this is part three of our series on Alejandro Dodorowski, the cinema of cruelty, as we've titled it, three of four. So we are uh, over halfway through this series, and uh, this is the third part in Jodorowsky's uh people walking from one place to another trilogy. Yes, in search, <laughs> in, in search, search of, of, in search of some sort of enlightenment. Uh, yeah. This is the this has been a theme through all of these uh, movies so far. But you know, I think this is the kind of the the culmination of everything so far, as we'll get into as we discuss. Uh, but I guess let's just get into it, Gary. We don't have a lot of banter without Todd here doing his dumb, uh, all of his dumb stuff <laughs> that he contributes to the beginning of the show. I feel like we're off our game a little bit. It's it's the spirit of Todd and his comic bookness. I am hoping that eventually there is a culmination where El Topo, Fondo, and Lise, and uh, the 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 Jesus guy, uh, all the thief, the Jesus uh, guy, the thief, yes, yeah, that they all end up in it, some sort of Avengers. It's all, <laughs> yeah, they all wherever they were all traveling to is all the same place. Like right, they, they all right. they all end up in the same. That is very a very Todd thought of uh, that you're giving there, Gary. Todd likes to Todd Todd really likes to write his own fanfic for things, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He we're just gonna talk shit about Todd while he's not here. <laughs> yeah. <what> <laughs> the other the other sad part about it, except for well, Fondo and Lee are dead at the end, I guess. So well, I guess El Topo is too. Uh, yeah. I was gonna say yeah, he, definitely, be... he definitely sets himself on fire and it's looking pretty <laughs> crispy at the end of that movie. So. <laughs> uh I, I guess uh even if they were alive, they'd be pretty boring superheroes because they all kind of get to this place of like, I'm just cool just sitting here. 
just existing. (laughs) (laughs) We need more superheroes that are just cool, just existing. Uh, Well, I think after our last episode, uh, if you listen to it, I think we can conclude that Alejandro Jodorowsky is a divisive figure in filmmaking. Uh, And we kind of knew that going into this series. I I knew when I started work on this series that this was a guy who would spark strong reactions on both sides of the aisle, both from his detractors and from his fans. And I think people listening to this, we've probably got equal parts of both of those. As I kind of joked about before, we do have we have had quite a a response to this where people are very excited that we're doing this because it's like Jodorowsky is my favorite filmmaker. And, you know, but we're, we're coming from this from a sort of uh unbiased point of view i guess you'd say we're you know we we talked about some difficult things in that last episode and we're not going to shy away from stuff like that ever uh but that aside i think as a filmmaker he is an incredibly important figure uh, and he's controversial i mean this is a guy who Early on in his career, well, really throughout all of his career, but especially early on in his career, he would say things in interviews with uh, what seems like the sole purpose was getting a rise out of people like the interviewers that he was talking to. He was, as Gary put it, uh, an edgelord kind of before that term ever even existed. And while we don't really condone uh, some of his actions or words, uh, we still think he's an artist that deserves to be discussed. Uh, not all great art is made by great people. Uh, history is filled with people who have immense talent, but who I wouldn't you know, want to go out to have a beer with. Uh, but that doesn't diminish the power of their art or the importance of their art. And when we discussed El Topo, uh, I think it was fair to say that you were generally not a fan of the movie. Is that right, Gary? Would I be fair in saying that? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I, I thought I thought it started strong and kind yeah. of petered out. It, yeah, I, and I, I said the same thing, even though I think I liked the movie a little bit more than you did. Um, I, I kind of had the same sentiment. I mean, I kind of feel I kind of feel like I fell in the middle. Like I, I've seen El Topo several times at this point, and its first half always keeps me enthralled. I think the first half of that movie is absolutely incredible, but I do kind of lose interest in the second half. Um, And I could care less about whether the symbolism on display makes sense or anything like that. But the truth of the matter is the second half of El Topo is kind of poorly paced. And I just kind of get bored with it a little bit in that second half. Uh, But El Topo was still a monumental moment in the history of cult cinema. And its impact on film cannot be overstated. And of course, when a guy like Jodorowsky, who was already, let's say, extremely confident in his own abilities uh, when he's greeted with the kind of success that he was met with in the wake of El Topo's legendary run of the Elgin theater and beyond. Well, let's just say that he doesn't get any less confident. In fact, when he set out to make his next film, his follow-up to El Topo, he said, and I quote, maybe I am a prophet. I really hope one day there will come Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, and Christ to see me. And we will sit at a table taking tea and eating some brownies. Well, Jodorowsky's next movie, the film that he would hope that would lead him to that moment, to that moment of enlightenment, was 1973's The Holy Mountain. You want to know the secret. They speak of holy mountains. Nine immortal men live on top of the mountain. Hold the secret to the conquest of death. You know you cannot escape death. 
but immortality can be obtained. We must unite our forces to assault the holy mountain and rob its wise men of their secret of immortality. Have you ever noticed that I, I don't know whenever or else to mention this, but have you ever noticed that Hodo's name in the credits is always spelled with an X? It's very strange. I did notice that this time. It's spelled that way in El Topo as well. And if you go back to the severed heads, it's spelled like Alexandre with an E at the end instead of oh, an that's o. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, he did that for a long time. I don't, it wasn't until I think he started writing books later on that he started uh, using the the correct spelling of his own name. I, I have no idea why he decided to do that. I, I've I never heard find him. it either. I've never and heard him time, speak of it. Yeah, the only things I could find him talking about his name were actually him talking about how his name is not complete, that originally his name is supposed to be Alejandro. Uh, well, I should have written it down because I think there is another name in there. But basically, Jodorowsky Prolansky, which is his mom's name. Yeah. He said he had that for a while. But then he, he said, uh, I mean, his only quote about that was basically, it is lost now. Only my father's name prevailed. <laughs> which whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, I, yeah, you just stopped going by that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's I've I've read in several interviews where he's talked about his name, like where the name Alejandro came from. And like it like in one, he's mentions that he was named after Alexander the Great, uh, which I don't that doesn't make any sense to me because because in all of his other interviews, he talks about how his parents kind of hated him. <laughs> so why would they name him after Alexander <laughs> the Great? <laughs> when they, you know, so I don't I don't know. I don't uh, that that 100 percent is a made up thing that he said, because I, when I was doing research on this one, I had read a bit about him being a huge fan of Alexander the Great. Like, yeah, that he but so and so, so in oh, retrospect, that, he's saying that that's what his parents named him after. Well, and that started because or that rabbit hole happened because of looking for the name. Actually, now that we're talking about it, it was I was looking for the X and some people were like theorizing that maybe it was because of his obsession with Alexander the Great that he put the X in his name. It may very well be. I mean, that that would make sense. Who knows with this fucking guy? Yeah, I sure don't. So, you know, he he contradicts himself a lot. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Even in, in interviews, he contradicts himself a lot because he is, you know, he's he's writing his own mythology a lot of times. And a lot of times that comes back to bite him in the ass. Like with his quotes in the book of El Topo that we talked about last episode, then he had to recant that years later. And he's gone back and forth. Like he's always, you know, when you're, when you're, I guess when you're making shit up, all the time, sometimes your your stories get crossed and you forgot that you've already told this story and you tell it a different way, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, before he began filming The Holy Mountain, Jodorowsky and his wife, Valerie, they went a week without sleep under the direction of a Japanese Zen master. Can you imagine going a full week without sleep? I was, I was literally, how do you even do that? I, I don't... mean, people do it, but why would you do it on purpose? <laughs> Why would, know, man. why would if I don't get my if I don't get a good seven and a half hours of sleep, I'm useless the next day. I need I need my rest. Yeah. Even when I do the traveling and I get the least sleep that I get, I already feel like a real shithead. Just like ass the next day. I mean, we're <laughs> yeah. and and we're, you know, we're in our early 40s. Uh, Jodorowsky was 45 
when he made this movie. So he's a little bit older than us. By the way, he's going to live to 125. I don't know if you knew that, but that's his prediction. Yeah, so he's still got about another 30 years. We still got another 30 years of uh, Jodorowsky because he just turned 94 this week as we're recording this. Yeah, so he's got a little while left, but he is he is guaranteed he's got at least 125 in there. (laughs) Well, after he did this week without sleep, after him and his wife, Valerie, did a week without sleep, uh, they took what is known as Arika training, which is a process that was developed by a man named Oscar Ichazo. Uh, I looked into this guy a little bit because he's pretty fascinating. Uh, Echazo was the son of a Bolivian general. Uh, he was a very eclectic dude, maybe even more so than Jodorowsky. His system, this Arika training, was an amalgam of Zen, Sufi, and yoga exercises with a theoretical overlay that was derived from alchemy, uh, the Kabbalah, uh, the I Ching, the teachings of George uh, Gurdjieff, if I'm saying that correctly. I've read that name a lot the last few weeks because Jodorowsky was also a student of his. He was a, a Russian guru. Um, so this Arika is kind of a, an amalgamation of all of these, among other esoteric doctrines. Uh, in 1973, a magazine called Ramparts described it as a body of techniques for cosmic consciousness raising and an ideology to relate to the world in an awakened way, which to me just sounds like a, um, I don't know, a canned description of a hundred other kind of esoteric teachings. But that's the cynical uh, that's the cynic in me, I guess. The, uh, just to throw this in there, uh, Gurdjieff. Uh, supposedly, according to Hodorowsky, Jodorowsky, he said he met his daughter at a screening of El Topo in Mexico, mm-hmm. and then they fucked. Of course. And, of course they did. And he would, <laughs> as they would lay in bed, he he would have her tell, uh, t- talk to him about her father's teachings as she had heard them. So. Be really weird to be uh, cuddling in bed after boning <laughs> and uh, start talking about dad. Right. <laughs> tell me about your tell me father. about your father. <laughs> what did your dad think about this? <laughs> well, Ichazo was about a year younger than Jodorowsky, and around the time that El Topo was being filmed, he established his first institute in Arica, Chile, which is a small town about 150 miles from Jodorowsky's birthplace. And then not long after El Topo made Jodorowsky a counterculture sensation, Echazo moved his Arika Institute to New York City. And in New York City, he attracted hordes of followers among the kind of hipper, you know, showbiz demographic who were all into like the psychedelic uh, and mystical arts. The main actors for the Holy Mountain, once they were cast, they were actually required to take three months of Arika training, after which they spent a month living communally in Jodorowsky's home. Yeah, uh, he talks a bit about this, saying, and he, and he brought Ichazo there to his home at one point, too, apparently, and, and, and he would interact with him throughout this, but uh, he wanted to become a guru, so he needed him to come there and teach him what that meant to be a guru, so Ichazo had to illuminate him. Uh, we can talk more about that later or what that what that what that entails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what that entails. I did <laughs> want to mention here too. There, did you see the uh, on the on the newest DVD set of the Holy Mountain? There is a whole section on Pablo uh, Leader. Did you see? Yes. That? Yeah. His um his assistant. Uh, I I did see that, and I, I watched the whole interview. It's actually pretty fascinating because he talks a lot about stuff that. He talks about all of Jodorowsky's movies up, you know, Fondo and Lise and El Topo. And he actually had some little tidbits here and there that I didn't come across in my research on both of those films. Yeah. So I kind of wish that that had been included on an earlier uh, Blu-ray, but 
Yeah, I I felt the same way. I was like, I wish I had seen this, uh, what Justin's talking about. I mean, he, he talks, I mean, he's got like little stories about like, I think in Fondo, at least he talks about he was in that movie, but uh, he was uh, uh, on a dead sow that was split in half, having a quote, erotic moment. Uh, yep. But it, uh, they, <laughs> it was apparently so brutal, they cut it. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. Uh, but this guy, uh, he was Hodorowski's uh, personal assistant from 67 to 72. I'm finding myself bouncing around between Hodorowski and Jodorowski. That's okay. Way. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> we I just didn't want to bother we, you that we no, had settled on Jodorowski. We did, I, but we also said that I think we also said that we might slip in one of the other pronunciations here and there because yeah once everyone you see else enough interviews yeah you yeah. see enough interviews you're like you, you start bouncing around but yeah. uh so anyway he was a personal assistant he he was like a student at, at odo's theater school uh then he got a job as a mime and an actor and all this stuff anyway i i have a reason for bringing him up but uh since you mentioned those stories there were I was trying to think. He, he, I mean, according to him, he's the guy who suggested Hodo play El Topo mm-hmm. uh, when he couldn't find an actor to do the job. Yeah, because they had and, cast a Mexican actor in El Topo who was, I guess, well known or you know, somewhat well known. Who they didn't want to shave their head for the last act of the movie. So Jodorowsky was finally like, "Fuck it, I guess I got to do it." And yes, this guy says that it was actually his suggestion to do that. Yeah, same with the outfit for El Topo, which I thought was interesting. Like uh, Hodo. Wanted to be in uh, cashmere wool, I think he said, and then he had su- su- suggested he had been to an S and M shop. It was like, no, the se- sexuality and leather and blah blah blah. blah. And anyway, that's why Alejandro chose the leather outfit. Neither uh, one is a great uh, wool or leather is not a great thing to wear in the middle of the desert. I, my my favorite parts of it were, were also him talking about just the idea, uh, just being a part of the behind the scenes because you don't get much more of that besides. Jodorowsky talking about it yeah. and so uh him talking about like you know and like El Topo like he he'd say like okay I want to see your face then her whole body and then I want to uh you know and then she'll walk off to the right over this part and then uh Krakini, the uh guy who always does the shooting for him uh says oh so you want a close-up then a medium shot long shot traveling shot and he's just like <laughs> The quote that leader gave is says he says that Jodo says, I want a fucking shit here and a fucking shit over there. Do you not <laughs> understand what I want? I don't know your terminology. <laughs> yeah, but I've seen Jodorowsky mention that in several interviews, including I, I watched uh I rewatched Jodorowsky's Dune earlier today, and he and it gives a little brief overview of his career leading up to that point. And he he says it in that interview too. He's like, I didn't know any of the terminology the lenses the lens numbers things like that i just you he he says that he came into film as a virgin of course that's the terminology he would use but he comes in uh not knowing anything about the technical side of film but he knows how he wants it to look uh so it was a matter and i think that was a matter of contention between him and corkiti a lot because corkiti was a professional who'd been doing this for a decade or so at this point and jodorowsky comes in but he but he still had a very like distinct like, I know exactly how I want this to look. It's just a matter of Corkiti having to translate that into technical terms, I guess. Which sounds like what a lot of people have to do. Like, you know, uh, Pablo uh, is talking about, uh, you know, he'd always have to translate like when, when they're looking for casting and stuff uh, that, you know, if he says he wants an old woman and they try to bring him some like 70 year old woman, he's like, no, you need to go older. <laughs> he means yeah, like 120 need... years old yeah <laughs> and, and if he says fat lady 
he doesn't mean 200 pounds. He means 400 pounds. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just, I don't know. It's a, it he seems like an interesting guy to work with. And I'm wondering if either of these guys are like ever thinking like, man, you devote all this shit to learning everything about every religion. Could you take two weeks for film school? <laughs> just, uh, maybe maybe just i don't know just take a few days just yeah focus on you being like a director i mean he got the movies made so i guess he didn't he, really I, need to i guess so i guess so <laughs> uh he tells the story i mean about... sam raimi we talked about the sam raimi series how he would meet with uh you know his cinematographers and he didn't know any of the technical terms either yeah that's yeah. true that's a good so, point so i won't be too hard on him for this he also helped with like i mean as uh he gets into holy mountain and the bigger budget and stuff like that though i mean this is the guy i i wanted to bring him up for a couple of reasons one was just like this guy seems to be like the ultimate other person involved in the insider like, yeah yeah who was holding the casting sessions like getting all the stuff done especially in holy mountain where there's like infinitely more people than mm -hmm. there have been at any other movie so far also just that he is so weirdly devoted to jodorowsky which yeah. when you're talking about those people staying at his house and you, mm -hmm. you kind of allude to it being kind of cult-like almost like it just it seems like that's the kind of does that, the thing this guy does he's a yeah. cult leader it's so he really is i mean weird. There, there is a I, I truly believe like in in doing all this research i think that there could have been an alternate like version of of history where jodorowsky starts a like an actual cult like like yeah. I, it is 100 feasible because he he somehow he creates that type of devotion in people where people think that he is this like religious figure. Like they, there's something about him that really draws people in. I mean, the, the interview you're talking about uh, with leader, he, he almost comes to tears as he chokes up several times during that interview, just talking about his experience is working with Jodorowsky. Well, some of my favorite documentaries to watch when I'm uh, just doing that is like, I love cult documentaries. So uh, yeah. There's stuff like with the Heaven's Gate cult, or uh, I forget the name of them right now. The sex cult that was over in California that, that girl from Smallville was. Oh, Nexium. Nexium. Yeah, Nexium. Yeah. yeah. When when you hear those stories about those cults, like they're they're these leaders that are like gathering information from other places. So you can always see like Jodo's like doing the same thing and like learning how to be a guru, learning yeah. how to lead people. And then they'll do things that there's all these different ways to like program devotion in. His leader has a story about he had to carry around lemons for Jodo for like if his mouth got dry. And then one day he forgot the lemons and Jodo's like, how could you forget the lemons? And he's like, I'm so sorry. And he like Jodo made him go get the lemons, which they were in the desert. This is during El Topo. And so it required him to like travel by horse like 20 miles, take a boat to another Jesus. area and to drive for 20 miles in a car to buy him lemons and come back and you like hear these stories and you're like this is like that in cults they they'll like do these abusive things do them and then you become more devoted to this person yeah. it's so weird and then at, at the very end of the thing through it all who by the way this was the guy i was like man if somebody should have got asked about that freaking rape this was probably the dude right yeah yeah who knows what admit. he would have said at the very end of the interview he's still talking about i feel nothing but gratitude for Alejandro Hodorowski. He is uh, he was talks about having a shrine with all these different religious icons all over it. And every single night he sits and he prays for Jodorowsky. <laughs> He's a fucking cult leader. Yeah. This guy I mean is he, a he nut. 
<laughs> he, he, I mean, he never truly started a cult, but he absolutely felt like he was on that road. <laughs> <laughs> like like one one little de- one little deviation of the road he was on and it, it could have been like something who who knows how we would have been talking about him to this day i don't know like it's like that um, bill burr bit uh with about Kanye. have you heard yeah. that where is uh so speaking of the cast of the holy mountain just like on el topo Jodorowsky cast himself as one of the Holy Mountain's lead roles, kind of the biggest, if there is a main role in this, this would be the the, the main role. It's a character known as the Alchemist, uh, very first character that we see in the film. And then just as he had done on his previous films, he filled the rest of the cast with uh, Mexican character actors, most of whom are unknown outside of their home country, or in a lot of cases with non-actors, uh, folks he had just found on the street. Uh, and keeping with the tradition of casting his own family members in his films, his wife Valerie, who we saw in Fondo and Lise, she was cast in the role of Cell. She is a Saturn. She's that Saturn. weird lady. Yeah, yeah that's doing she the. Looked, uh, she dressed like a clown the first time we see her. Yeah, and then she's like spoiling the children and all of that stuff and turning them against the Peruvians. Yeah, uh, <laughs> with the comic book and stuff. Yeah. yeah, he says here, I didn't want actors. I wanted to work with people playing parts close to themselves. I had to help them evolve mm-hmm. in order to change the world. I had to change the actors in the film. I will work with real people and enlighten them. Yeah, I, I know that in that in that uh, interview with Pablo Leader, it uh, he mentions that in I think El Topo, they cast some like prostitutes and they just cast actual prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then that's what he says. These were yeah. the the prostitutes in in this movie at the beginning are, are actual prostitutes. Yeah, it wasn't always Jodorowsky's plan to fill the Holy Mountain with unknowns necessarily. Uh, John Lennon had actually been offered the role of the thief, uh, but he turned it down, wanting to spend more time with Yoko. Typical John Lennon, I guess. Oh, <laughs> when, when Lennon turned it down, Jodorowsky off- offered the role to another Beatle, George Harrison, who also turned it down, although it wasn't to spend more time with loved ones. It was because of a scene where he would be required to show his butthole. Uh, Jodorowsky said, quote, I told him that I couldn't make the film with him if he refused it. I was crazy, but for me, one simple scene was worth more than all the Beatles in the world. Which is only four. According to Joda, they met at the Plaza Hotel in New York, and they were both so excited. He said he went in, ready to go, and Harrison said, I'll do it except where the thief has his anus washed. I'm not <laughs> showing my anus. And Shoto says, I told him you have to. This isn't just a film. This will change people's minds. You'll provide a wonderful example by leaving your ego behind. And then he refused. And Shoto said, no asshole, no film. <laughs> and so he said he went back to Mexico and lost millions because of that. But I don't make films to earn money or fame. I make them to change mankind. Real dedicated to having that butthole on screen. And you don't even see the butthole. <laughs> and you don't you, really see the butthole. You don't. You see a lot of taint hair, but you don't really <laughs> see you don't really see a butthole at all in that scene. Uh, I will say for what it's worth, when, when that scene came on, my first like sit down, and I'm doing all these by myself in my in my little office room here. Lights out, just throw them on and just try to get absorbed into it and this one man i don't know i don't know if it's the culmination of all the johto up until now or what but it it just this one was already like poking at me 
<laughs> all the way up until this. And by the time that scene came on, I was like, oh, Jesus, come on. I mean, early Jesus, I guess. Well, yeah, so almost literally. <laughs> I mean, but imagine if this movie had had George Harrison in the lead role or John Lennon. Uh, John Lennon would probably showed his butthole. The, the further we go along, I also am just not surprised John Lennon loved this guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know? But I mean, this movie, it was, you know, we'll talk about its success later, but it would have been a phenomenon probably if it had starred one of the Beatles. I mean, this is 1973, you know, like, uh, yeah, or 73, yeah, 73 when this came out. Uh, Imagine in 1973, this movie comes out and George Harrison is in the lead role. I mean, it would have been a huge movie. I don't think he's lied when he says he left millions on the table. Yeah, no, he absolutely did. Yeah, I I mean, I I sound like I'm scoffing at Jodorowsky a lot of the times, and it's mostly just because of how ridiculous, how outrageous he could be, like with the stuff he says. It's not that I think he's an idiot. No, he's he's actually very he's very intelligent. Yeah, he's he's a smart dude, and he know he knows what he wants to get across, and he he does not compromise. Yeah, he is dedicated to making sure that happens. Show me the butthole. <laughs> it does. Wow. I don't know. Out of everything we've seen, this this movie, The Holy Mountain, it's got some stuff in it that I'm just like, holy shit. <laughs> like just when I thought we couldn't do anything else. <laughs> this motherfucker comes along. <laughs> he's like, I'm still gonna blow your minds. Baby. Yep. <laughs> well, when George Harrison turned down the role, Jodorowsky offered the role to Bob Dylan. He actually met Bob Dylan through Alan Klein, who, if you remember our last episode, Alan Klein was John Lennon's manager who had purchased the rights to El Topo, and he was helping him with this movie. But Dylan at the time actually had another movie, like another offer for another role in a movie, and he chose that other movie instead. He was kind of going back and forth between the two. Uh, That movie was actually Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It's an outstanding movie. stars uh, Chris Christopherson. And And much less butthole. Yeah, from what I remember, yeah, there's a lot less butthole in it. <laughs> Dylan had actually told Jodorowsky that he needed reality in his life, something concrete. He thought that uh, doing Pat Garrett as opposed to this metaphysical whatever you know thing that Jodorowsky was proposing he do uh, was more in line with what he was into at the time. No word on whether Dylan had any objections to the butthole scene. Just think of all the famous butthole we could have seen. <laughs> we could have seen, <laughs> could have seen Bob Dylan's. Uh, yeah. Jodorowsky uh, would later say, it shocked me that he, being the great poet that I saw him as, would rather make a cowboy movie, that he would refuse the avant-garde to go play in a Western. I was flabbergasted. I mean, to be fair, it's not as if Dylan was just making some random western he was making a sam peckinpah movie i mean he was yeah. making a, a movie with one with one of the best guys to ever make a western so i i think jodo like he expects every other artist or at least artist he somewhat respects to see things his way right uh, or, yeah. or to have the same exact mentality he's he can't even comprehend that you would not and so i i feel like for sure bob dylan would be somebody that jodo was cool with just those weird ass lyrics and stuff you'd mm-hmm. be like yeah this guy i fuck with this so he just doesn't understand when bob dylan's like i don't know man i just want to do a regular western yeah I just wanted to be in a Western. Well, Jodorowsky coming so close to working with some of the biggest rock stars of all time seems a little random unless you realize just how big of a figure he was in the counterculture. Uh, As we mentioned in our last episode, John Lennon was largely responsible for the success of El Topo, and he is the one who 
persuaded Klein to purchase the rights. And when it came time for Jodorowsky to create his follow-up to that film, it was Klein who produced the film, who produced The Holy Mountain, uh, which was funded by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, who through Klein gave Jodorowsky a million dollars to make the film. Now, some some reports say $750,000, some say a million, Jodorowsky says a million. Uh, either way, that's a big chunk of money, that lar- most of which came from John Lennon. Well, after Lennon agreed to finance the film, Jodorowsky went to Lennon's house to thank him, where he says he had the misfortune of agreeing to have him show me films that John and Yoko had made together, films that Jodorowsky called unwatchable. When a journalist from Rolling Stone later asked Jodorowsky what he thought of Lennon and Ono's films, Jodorowsky told him the truth, that he didn't like them at all, and he says, John and Yoko never forgave me. So, but I guess at that point he already had their million dollars. So, have we seen the John and Yoko films? No, I no, I don't. I don't know if they've ever been released. I know that they were showing at the Elgin when El Topo premiered, but uh, I don't know if they've ever been released or not. If they have, I don't think that I would be interested in seeing them, uh, except out of maybe like curi- <laughs> except out of curiosity. But <laughs> I'm only mildly curious now, just because what was he producing that he thought, you know, who's going to dig this? probably Jodorowsky right (laughs) but you know what they're not good enough for Jodorowsky they're not good enough for me Gary very few things would be good enough for Jodorowsky it feels (laughs) like other than other Jodorowsky films right Uh, I know he's he talks about other filmmakers that he likes he's a big fan of Fellini uh he he grew up watching all those you know sci-fi movies and stuff he's actually a big fan of David Lynch he talks about David Lynch a lot in his move in in interviews Uh, although David Lynch would come along later so those are later interviews well after the Holy Mountain because we're still Five years away, I think, from Eraserhead at this point. Uh, I was watching stuff that he was, at this point, pretty good buddies with Kenneth Anger. That tracks. Yeah, and uh, Lucifer Rising was a a movie. I actually was going to bring this up in a later section of the... It's on YouTube. I guess they were buddies around this time, too. Okay. I mean, that that absolutely makes sense. Because they're both very, like, avant-garde, very experimental. Uh, Kenneth Anger in in a different way. Than Jodorowsky, but uh, Kenneth Anger would be an interesting series for us to do here. His films are not like they're they're, they're hard to analyze necessarily, but his story is is fascinating. And he kind of intertwines with this story a little bit too, because he was part of that like underground film movement. Him and like Andy Warhol, Stan Brackage, guys like that were part of that underground experimental film movement that kind of paved the way for the midnight movie movement that. El Topo would begin. So the Holy Mountain began shooting in the spring of 1972. The film was shot entirely in Mexico, and just like Jodorowsky's previous films, uh, the scenes were shot in chronological order. And this kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier about the devotion of some of the people involved in this, but the cast and crew of this film did seem to be inspired by a sort of mystical sense of purpose. Uh, In a 1972 set visit, Rolling Stone journalist Robert Greenfield was told by a production assistant on set, you know, I think this is the most important thing going on in the world today. At the very least, it's the most far out. <laughs> so those are the people who are working on that. That's the production assistant on, on the Holy Mountain. Probably someone who saw El Topo was like, I got to take a pilgrimage to Mexico the next time this guy's making a movie. I want to be there for it. <laughs> was it that? Would that have been Pablo Leader? Wasn't he a PA on a lot of the stuff or something? I don't know. Uh, the, that that article, which I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, it doesn't name the production assistant. It just says a production assistant. It describes him as having long hair and a beard, I think, which 
was probably 90% of the people on set. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it seems like some people were kind of joining Jodorowsky on his journey to make the Holy Mountain as if it were a religious undertaking. Uh, there's another guy, a guy named David uh, Kapralik. He was a manager for uh, Sly and the Family Stone, which seems random, except that Sly is one of the guys, one of the many rock stars that Jodorowsky met in the wake of El Topo's release. Kapralik flew himself to Mexico on his own dime for a very small kind of bit role. I mean, you can see him in the film. He's not an extra, but he plays like an American tourist in the film and kind of one of the early scenes. Yeah, he's the guy with the video camera that poses with a soldier begging his wife or like the yeah. thief takes the camera and films him like yeah. posing. And um... and he's wearing like a big sombrero and like a red robe. And then later on, he's also the, the his wife comes along again after they meet the, the people who are selling the Christ, the, the, the Christ for sale. And he's the one who first tries to pick up the cross, I believe, as well, because that's his wife there, too. He's wearing a different outfit, though, and but it still has the video camera and stuff. It's just it's I don't know. I think it was probably Jodorowsky's. Uh, take on American tourists in Mexico. I would imagine. It, yeah, it was uh, Americans are a bunch of cucks. But no, no, no. It actually, <laughs> it actually was more that uh, he 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 does mention in the commentary that Americans don't care about the politics of the rest of the world. It's entertainment for them. They like where he gives the thief money for filming his wife getting fucked yeah. by the soldiers, stuff yeah. like that. He's they're oblivious to any damage going on around them. It's just fun and photography, and they're cucks. Uh, the, <laughs> he had like these people like that though, uh, like his, the chauffeur uh, for the millionaire. Well, the, that millionaire was apparently a real millionaire with a real house and a real art collection and all this stuff. Uh, I forget what planet that was now. Um, yeah, I can't remember either it, Pluto, maybe. I don't know. I get them mixed up. <laughs> yeah, and he's the one with the chauffeur. And they fucked the robot. Um, yeah, with that big dildo, the old uh, fuck the machine. Yeah, the old fuck machine. The uh, the chauffeur is played by the son of like a Hollywood producer, Harry Cohen. Like he, he had traveled down there to just do something, just because uh, he wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, and he mentions also like the the American girl. By the way, in the fuck machine scene, uh, it's some American girl they met at a club. Her name was Ray. That's all he knew about her. And he says in the commentary, "I got her to take drugs through her ear. Nobody does that. I invented ear cocaine." Yeah, he does put cocaine in her ear. I don't think it works that way, though. <laughs> I'm not an expert by any means. Uh, I've never done cocaine, but I have to imagine it doesn't work by just sticking it in your ear. He's real proud of things that he says he did first. So yeah, even if they're the, dumb, uh, even if they're dumb. <laughs> I mean, he claims at one point, you know, he was the first actor to ever use black fingernail polish. And uh, ever. Of rock stars steal that from me later. Sure, maybe. <laughs> I can't I, I don't have proof against that so I don't either so I was like Man, I don't know I Maybe. was gonna go down that rabbit hole but I decided against it <laughs> yeah it's not worth the time <laughs> well Oscar Achazo remember the Eureka guy uh, he would frequently drop in on the shoot uh, of the Holy Mountain and he had two Eureka group leaders who were assigned to the project full-time that were always standing by to to provide any necessary Mongolian massages with a wooden spoon. Mm. Don't know. I don't, I did not Google that. <laughs> what a Mongolian massage with a wooden spoon is. But if anyone needed one on the set of the Holy Mountain, they had a couple of experts there ready to administer them. You got uh, your wooden spoon massage. <laughs> well, Jodorowsky would actually later sour on Arika uh, after the Holy Mountain's lone Los Angeles showing. He spoke to a reporter with the Village Voice, and he said, "It's a longer quote, but I'm going to read it because uh, it's f funny. 
but he says, you want me to tell you about Oscar? I will tell you. He comes to me in Mexico. We will make a great movie together, says Oscar. He will train me. He will train my actors. You want to know of what his training consists? Oscar's idea of training is two days in a motel room with me taking LSD. I want you to know I don't need Oscar to take LSD in a motel room. I do that plenty enough on my own. <laughs> he definitely mentions it was like LSD in eight hours of guidance. Jodo says he acts like he was prepared, like he had been training. He's like, he's going to do all these exercises with me. I'm going to have to go through these motions and stuff. And he said he got there was like, don't waste your time. Just take this LSD. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's like, so that's what I did. I did. Just tripping in a motel room. <laughs> yeah. But he said you did teach him the Enneagram. So, yeah, uh, which yeah is the high personalities that he used that. So, yeah, I some of the reading I read said that uh, Ichazo invented the Enneagram, uh, that he oh. was the one who came up with that. Now, another one, another place I, I read or I saw in a documentary, I can't remember, said that it was who's the Russian guy we were talking about? Gujif? Gunjif? Yeah, Gujif. Uh, Gurdjieff, yeah, that guy. So another place I saw said that he actually originated it. But remember that Achazo was a student of his or studied his stuff. So it's possible that he took some of his ideas and turned them into the Enneagram. I'm not really sure. I don't know. That I'm, not, I'm no expert on that, uh, again, uh, by any means. But uh, yeah, if you if you start researching Achazo, I mean, he is considered kind of the father of the Enneagram. And that's the symbol that you see the alchemist wear on his his pendant. And it's also on that giant table that they all sit at at the end. That's the symbol for the Enneagram. Well, as seems to be the case in all of Jodorowsky's films, uh, this shoot was a somewhat difficult one. Uh, shooting with a low budget, you know, con comparatively low budget, I mean, big for, for Jodorowsky, but compared to the scope of the film he was trying to make this is a pretty low budget and he's shooting in the middle of you know scorching deserts with a cast comprised of mostly non-professionals uh, that can make things a little bit challenging and shooting in consecutive order honestly kind of adds to that challenge and then bringing in all sorts of animals and then dressing them up in little conquistador outfits probably presents an even bigger challenge to the filmmakers he says the frogs pissed acid and then they Literal? blow them what literally I mean, he kept saying it, the pissed acid, <laughs> and then they'd blow themselves up. Not literally. Uh, he, he'd do that later. Jodo would do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, it, it would like, they would like blow themselves up extra large so that the outfits, when they put them on, then they'd slide right off so they could get out of them. And uh, the chameleons were hard because they didn't move. So he said they would have to like sit there for like hours, like just waiting for the chameleons to do something and he'd be like screaming at them to move and they'd finally like make a movement but he apparently knew a guy at a at a zoo he would load them to him at night so he could, he could get some animals i mean i don't know about the frogs i i think this was like most of the other animals that were on the set yeah i was uh, say because the frogs and the chameleons are definitely like during the day like they're, yeah they're yeah sunlight. Yeah, and if you're wondering why, uh, toads because they're soft and chameleons because they're immobile and perfect. I don't, I don't know what that. <laughs> that's, means. That's, that's that's why. Yeah, um, uh, and the uh, monkey his name was uh, Chucho Chucho. Yeah, he was in a couple yeah. other movies before this. Yeah, they they legitimately taught him to meditate. So it's you know. kind of it's impressive, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when we do see him meditating. Uh, one day during the shoot of the Holy Mountain, uh, a riot nearly broke out among the extras. This is a, a recurring theme, I guess, riots in Jodorowsky movies. But uh, these these uh, the story, this comes from that same Rolling Stone article that I mentioned earlier, but was that they'd been kind of difficult all day, restless and 
kind of constantly moving out of position. Uh, and eventually the tension got to the point where the police were brought in. Uh, the leader of the group, uh, I guess they were forming a mob. <laughs> uh, the leader of this group of extras told Jodorowsky, you are only playing with goats. I think he's speaking of like the crucified goats we see in the church scene. Uh, we, and they, he continued to say, we need them to eat, give them to us when you are finished. But unknown to them, the goats were not Jodorowsky's to give away. They had apparently been rented. Yeah, he rented them from a restaurant, and he had to return <laughs> them once he was done so they could be served. So, so somebody, somebody ate those goats after this movie. <laughs> so somebody out there can say they ate a piece of Holy Mountain. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, well, I mean, the filming of the Holy Mountain is filled with these kinds of stories. A lot of them, thanks to that Rolling Stone article that I mentioned, although he was only there for a couple of days, so he's only hitting on certain things. Um, I do wish that there was more information about some of, like, the set building and things like that, because the sets in this, I mean, Jodorowsky designed all the sets himself, and they look incredible. I want to know how the fuck machine got made. Like, that thing is an impressive piece of just equipment, whatever it's made out of. Like, when you see it open and transform, like, I want to know who who designed that, who did that. But unfortunately, there's just not a lot of that kind of information out there uh, about this, at least, at least not that I found. Uh, it, it was this was a much bigger shoot, of course, than anything Jodorowsky had done before. Uh, tons of extras that he would not have previously been able to afford. Much more complex special effects, uh, more elaborate locations, more intricate sets, including a soundstage uh, they had for about a month, the, which was actually the first soundstage that Jodorowsky had ever used on any of his films. I will say of the commentary track, uh, since. I'm I'm usually the one that listens to those. This one's way more. He's less interested in telling you details about production than what he's trying to convey with the symbols and and right, that sort of right. thing. And so um, every once in a while he slips into stuff, and I've got some cool quotes for later. But I mean, he he does slip into a few stories here and there about like I mean he talks about how like some of the sets were built to like they can. Like they, it almost sounds like they would like fold into something else. So like the rainbow room would be one thing, and then it could like turn into something else pretty easily or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, rented out these like warehouses and have like retired workers or like in one scene there's like old people. He like shuttled them from an old folks home or whatever it is <laughs> that they were like constantly soiling themselves or something. Of course. Like, it was just, yeah, it was uh real weird. He does have some some interesting stuff from there it was like I did like hearing about, you know, there's a scene where like uh, it was homosexuals he said, but like it was the soldiers dancing with the people and he was trying to convey that like during this time this is sort of a mix of what he said and what I was reading about but like, you know, Latin America was having a lot of stuff with authoritarian governments taking over and that sort of thing. Just recently, the uh, Mexican government had involved with had been involved in uh, I think with shooting a bunch of college kids, and uh, nobody had wanted to touch that. And uh, he, of course, did. Uh, so, like that truck full of like the bodies in the back, and then you see the people in like in like uh, shirt and tire, like the schoolgirl skirts or whatever and they get shot by like the army guys in mass and stuff this is all touching on this like mexican thing where like they had killed some college kids during a protest well yeah we, and, that's what uh, we talked about during that uh during fondo and lease remember that was kind of what why it was so tense when that movie oh, yeah. premiered yeah right right but then he was trying to convey with like civilians dancing with the soldiers 
like in that one scene because he was trying to convey that they're the same they're equal civilians are just soldiers without uniforms he was trying to it's a weird like he's trying to convey that like everybody's the same and it's just like these different little things can push you into another i don't know he said uh during the time like the church had just published a book against him uh they huh. call uh and they called him ahead of time and said uh when they heard he was filming that the president likes you but we've had complaints don't do a movie that involves soldiers, firefighters, any kind of like servants, like public servants. Basically, it sounds like the government's been good to you, but it could get really bad really fast. He says, so essentially they threatened his life is what he said. It was talking about around the dancing scene. Um, he said a crazy Charo pulled a gun and said, stop filming this movie or I'm going to kill you. And he said he went insane. He said, he said, if you kill me, I'll kill you. And then the Charo like got scared and left. He said, I risked my life for this scene. Who knows how much of this is actually right, uh, yeah, yeah. Accurate. Always a great assault. <laughs> yeah. But um it was it was kind of interesting. He said the government and the church and everybody was kind of fighting with him. In fact, um, if you if going back to that Pablo uh later interview, he talks a little bit about this as well. You know, they were doing stuff like the tower that the that uh the thief climbs, uh, which just was insane i would shit my thong if i was climbing that tower that he without a permit or anything had not talked to anybody and just built a room on top of that tower with a hole in it and yeah. uh brought in a helicopter and there's photos you can find and stuff too like of them landing in there but they had an actor dress as a cop and uh, stop traffic and everything. And they <laughs> that whole scene. Yeah. <laughs> so and, that tower uh, already existed. Then they built the room on top of it. Basically, I, it, you have to wonder though how how could they construct that on top without somebody like questioning why? I don't know. I, <laughs> that's what I thought when I heard that story because that that's one that I did hear. Yeah, they said uh, it was a Ciudad satellite. I think mm -hmm. it's it the name of the place or something. But um, uh, when they were driving the bodies through the streets and stuff, and it has the women ironing and stuff, mm -hmm. the uh, church accused him of holding a black mass uh, yeah. with the lambs of the uh, crosses and yeah. stuff. So he was going to get expelled from the country. It was around that time they said that um, that the government was threatening them then, and they were worried that the government was going to um, pull the film or stop filming, and then the uh, film would get, quote-unquote, lost. Yeah, And so he said that Jodorowsky was going to get expelled from the country when he got that threat from the church, too. He left and went back to New York for a while, and he called Pablo and told him, like, we've got to get the film here. They said that they were worried that something would happen to the film if they requested it. And so they started a story about how in L.A. they were going to do a screening uh, celebrating... Uh, this is a Mexican thing, so forgive me if I if I get this wrong. It was like uh, Charo Negro. It's like yeah, yeah, the Black yeah, Charo. Charo, yeah, which is a film series. Yeah, and they were gonna do that, so they were celebrating that. So they requested that film and like the son of Black Charo and uh, Black Charo's Revenge and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But instead, Pablo went in there and they had to tie together all the holy mountain reels that they had and take it back across the border, saying like that it was a uh, El Charo Negro. <laughs> yeah that's how they got it out wow that's wild that is crazy well it was completed just in the nick of time to screen at the 1973 con film festival where it was highly anticipated but once it 
was shown, it was kind of coolly received. Uh, there was another film called La Grande Buffet, which was directed by Marco Ferreri, and that ended up being the year's most scandalous con screening. And Alan Klein, kind of seeing its potential, picked up that film's American rights. When it screened at con, uh, he said he had to submit under a country and uh, he was very adamant about this. He says, quote, my country is my shoes. Uh, <laughs> and so he said, but because of where he had filmed a lot of it, he said that it would be Mexico. Yeah. He said that Mexico didn't want it. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't want to claim it. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to claim it. And it's, he says, because there were no charros in the movie. But uh, <laughs> he said that that was what affected his results at Cannes. Ah, well, after the con screening, Jodorowsky trimmed about 20 minutes from the film, uh, eliminating as much dialogue as he could. And then both it and La Grande Buffet were scheduled to open in New York later that fall in 1973. Uh, and Klein had high hopes for La Grande Buffet, but he was a little more uncertain about the Holy Mountain's prospects after its lukewarm reception at con, and determined to, as he said, protect Jodorowsky from the critics, Klein restricted the Holy Mountain's New York run to Friday and Saturday midnights at the Waverly Theater. The Waverly Theater was another theater that was pretty significant in the history of midnight movies, as it would later become the original home of the midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show just a couple years later. Uh, the Holy Mountain opened in New York on November 29th, 1973, and despite Klein's disappointment, uh, the Holy Mountain could not really be seen as a failure, not at least as as a midnight movie. Uh, it didn't, you know, wasn't breaking box office records, but as a midnight movie, it was highly successful, and it ran midnights at the Waverly continuously for 16 months, all the way up and through the first week of April in 1975. Outside of New York, the Holy Mountain was screened as a double bill with El Topo in most markets, although there were several major markets where it wasn't released at all, most notably in Los Angeles. Uh, although it was shown in LA on March 30th, 1974, at the Filmex Film Festival for what was described as the American premiere. It never screened there again at all during its original run. I can't even fathom a double bill of El Topo and the Holy Mountain. <laughs> you better be doing some good drugs or something. Although Jodorowsky would not say that. He would say that the movie is the drug. Uh, and that's, that's true. You know, that's what's going to get the re the reaction from you. Just the experience of watching the movie. I'm just saying somebody better hit me with some ear cocaine quick. <laughs> uh, well, because of its unique release, tracking down reviews of the film from its original run proved to be kind of difficult for me. Uh, although I did find an article in the New York Times from January of 1974 written by T.E.D. Klein and this I'll try to link this in our uh, show notes as well, but this article, uh, it's really not a review, uh, although the writer does describe the film as being filled with dime store mysticism, saying, quote, it squanders a truly incredible amount of props, images, and money, all to little effect, for Jodorowsky tries so hard to be shocking that, in the end, he becomes merely monotonous. He reminds one of a Fellini without the feeling. And that article, which is called They Kill Animals and They Call It Art, 
goes on to describe the various animal deaths or dead animals that are seen on screen in the Holy Mountain and then uses the film as a jumping off point for a discussion about animal cruelty in films using more well-known films like uh, the previously mentioned Peck and Paw film, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh, Dennis Hopper's Kid Blue, Frank Schaefer's Patton uh, as other kind of recent examples. It's actually, this article is a really fascinating glimpse at a moment in film history when people decided that something should maybe be done about this. Uh, and the involvement of the American Humane Association became a regular occurrence on film sets. You know, when you see at the end of the films, no animals were harmed during the filming of this movie. Uh, that's the American Humane Association that they usually put a representative on set anytime that animals are being used. That wasn't always the case. Not, I mean, it especially not prior to you know the early 70s mid 70s uh, although it should be noted that i don't think any of that any of the dead animals that we see in this film were killed for the sake of being in the film like we mentioned the goats or the lambs earlier had been rented a local restaurant uh, there were you know dead animals that were taken from butcher shops and things like that the only animals that might have been killed during the filming of El Oli mountain were probably the frog conquistadors who definitely looked like they got blown up like they, they definitely look like they exploded um, other than that though i don't know that there are any you know animal deaths in this although i mean there were in el topo as we mentioned last week there was also the dog fight and i could not find anything that like mentioned that directly yeah i'm not sure uh, about that and that you was don't really that... see you don't really see them like biting each other it's more like them that i remember i mean i could be misremembering it um so i'm not sure if I, I honestly don't know about that one myself. Well, I know it's going to get brought up in, in some of the reviews of the film or, you know, like when we get to nap time. And uh, I this is what I told myself to help myself sleep at night is I have seen other movies where there were dog fights. I feel like we covered one maybe, but I can't remember exactly where I remember this. But they like covered the dogs in honey or something. Right. Yeah. And they were going you know ham on each other and just like mm -hmm. lick at each other and stuff and not sure like, there are, i mean there are lots of movies where they they feature dog fights like i mean snatch is, is the first one that comes to mind for me but uh where they're not the dogs are not actually fighting it's simulated you know because it's a movie yeah. although yeah. with jodorowsky who the hell knows but i i couldn't find anything about it that that really said one way or the other as far as hard movie. to fake the slow motion frog bodies flying though so. yeah unless they're not real frogs unless they were like I yeah frog. i guess that's true but aside from that article i couldn't really find any other reviews from the time of its release like i looked i could not find reviews of this movie from 1973 1974 uh but if the last two episodes have been any indication i feel like there's probably no shortage of modern day reviews to be found for the holy mountain well justin you're absolutely right there are plenty of people online who have seen the holy mountain not only do they need to take a nap we're probably going to need a nap after I go through them. So let's get started with Somebody Needs a Nap. <laughs> a few. I tried to get a bunch of quick hits, so hopefully this goes well and Justin doesn't have to edit too much. Uh, let's see here. Uh, BJ says, uh, Russ Meyer on LSD. That's the review title. Uh, Pseudo-intellectuals and wannabe elitists. Rejoice. Your movie has arrived. A film so artsy-fartsy, so pretentious, so Euro-trashy that it's the perfect film to pretend to like in a vain attempt to impress people you feel mentally inferior to. Behold, I give you the Holy Mountain. 
Do you boastfully tell people that you listen to NPR but don't even know what NPR stands for? Watch the Holy Mountain. Do you sit in the corner of your local hipster coffee shop pretending to read a book containing the writings of some 19th century European philosopher? Watch the Holy Mountain. Do you mock religion yet worship at the altar of an 80-year-old communist from Vermont? Watch the Holy Mountain. You know who you are. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh that guy uh i don't want to be, i don't want to be friends with that guy <laughs> uh let's see uh sheepdog says quite possibly the greatest insult to your intelligence you will ever encounter compile the most depraved ambiguous crude thoughts you can imagine write them down act them out film it describe it as beyond criticism and unlike any cinema before it you'll have this movie I'm embarrassed for any individual that believes there's meaning to this movie beyond a compilation of the writer-director's sickest, most revolting thoughts and desires. This film makes Lars von Trier appear brilliant. It's absolute garbage in every way, shape, and form. David says, holy crap! This is a jumbled up mind trip. My dreams are messed up, but at least I have the common courtesy to not share them with the world. I (laughs) sat through the entire thing, and I was not entertained. Did not have any deep revelations, was not challenged intellectually. It ended with a complete feeling of having just wasted an hour plus of my life. I will never watch another Hodorowski film again. This one says, Manos with a bigger budget. Uh, <laughs> give a zero talent perverted drug addict money, he'll direct and star in The Holy Mountain. <laughs> Is that the whole review? That's the whole review. <laughs> This one says, uh, one star, have it. It says, have it, guard. I assume they mean avant-garde. They speech the text. Avant-garde and pretentious is one thing. Trying to make something original and different is one thing. But to do so at the expense of innocent animals is unforgivable. The director of this film needs to be arrested. Filming and killing any living creature for some piece of so-called art is a travesty. And there's, Man, some, there's a few like that. I'm not going to argue against that. All right, let's keep it going. We're in letterbox territory now, so now it just gets hot. Aigo uh, says, wow, that was fucking shit. Never have I seen a movie so fucking full of itself. The definition of pretentious. Also, thorough job of abusing animals for your shitty political opinions in a shitty movie. I fucking hate this garbage. Not a fan, huh? Not a fan. <laughs> no Brian says... I would literally give this movie negative stars as if I could. This is the hardest watch I've ever seen, and I absolutely hate it. This film is the epitome of pretentious film bros slapping a bunch of random shocking shit on screen and calling it symbolic. Not only is there crazy blatant sexism in almost every scene, but there's also borderline child porn. Not even to mention the live animal abuse throughout the movie. Killing frogs and abusing animals for no reason. There's a real dogfight in this movie. Why? I tried my best to understand this because it's rated so high on Letterboxd, but I just can't agree. Worst movie ever. Yeah! <laughs> oh, there it is. We haven't heard, had is. one of those in a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Freddie says, I threw up, and it was this film's fault. <laughs> Zobliss says, Someone looked at El Topo and thought, Amen! The rampant misogyny, animal killings, awful pacing, heavy-handed symbolism, and narcissism, and this are all great. It just needs more money and more borderline child pornography. 
I guess I should give this some credit for at least having more interesting set design than El Topo, but that only makes the viewing experience marginally less miserable. If I never see another Jodorowsky film in my life, it will be too bloody soon. Uh, Sounds like you should have read that in a British accent. Yeah, it does sound that way. Jackson says, I hated nearly every minute of this. One star, though, for Chucho Chucho. Then it comes back and <laughs> says, edit, forgot about the butt stuff, half star. What butt stuff? <laughs> oh, the, like the butthole? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And there's that one where it's art and they poke in the butt. Oh, yeah, they stick his finger in it. Yeah, like twice. <laughs> yeah. Captain Chevy says, I didn't know a movie could be so irritatingly obtuse and painfully heavy-handed at the same time. Pretentious rat fuckery masquerading as art. It's the first time we've heard the uh, term pretentious rat fuckery in one of these reviews, I think. That is true. Points Uh, for originality. This review is a half star, and it's just in all caps and italic. Jesus shitted? (laughs) Yeah, but it got turned into gold, my dude. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Pumpkin Possum says, half star, one of the worst, most obvious, obnoxious, pretentious, and heavy-handed movies I've ever seen in my entire life. The cinematic equivalent to watching someone on acid sucking themselves off while thinking they're incredibly profound for doing so. I despise this movie and the shallow cult-like performative film bro love and praise it gets more than life itself. People who uh, don't like this movie really don't like this movie. <laughs> I know this was that this was this was a you said somebody needs a nap. Boy, do I have some people that need a nap. Danny, about twenty minutes in, and what the actual fuck am I watching? About forty minutes in, and I'm thinking about cross-referencing the FBI Most Wanted with all of you who have given this a p- positive review. About forty-five minutes in, if I took a film class and they showed this movie, I'd fucking drop that class. About seventy minutes in, can this movie fucking end? I guess the silver lining here is that now, if anybody asks me the worst movie I've ever seen, I have an answer. Wow, twice we've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I these, know these people do know that you are. You can hit stop. I, right? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> One star, incredibly insufferable, pretentious, gross, and full of shock value, which even in context of 1973 was not anything special. Unpleasant watch due to its content, literally killing animals on screen, included, of course. And overall campiness being just fucking boring and lame, only giving it one star because of the set design. If you think this movie is actually deep, you're lying to get laid. <laughs> Joe Dorowski is a cult figure the same way L. Rod Hubbard was. Wow. <laughs> no, less successful. No. Yeah. I like this one because it's just, it's real vague. Half star. Count your fucking days, Alejandro. Whoa. <laughs> it's gonna kill him wow Mm. all right i'm gonna go with liza at the movies for my final review here she gave it a half star these were two pretty solid ones but i i like the funny short ones anyway liza says i watched this movie for the first time in 10th grade when my then boyfriend and i ran the film club with our friends and this was picked as one of our first weekly assignment movies I should have known he was a total psycho because when I raised my ethical qualms with any filmmaker killing dozens of live animals on screen to make a point, he said, who cares? They're lizards. I hated this movie then, and I hate this movie now. Watching it again as an adult, this film to me is the epitome of what happens when narcissistic artists tote their cold takes under technically skilled window dressing. 
Yes, this film is beautiful visually. Yes, the celestial themes are fun. I left a half star for the members of the crew responsible for the artistry therein. But this movie is full of philosophically scrawny messaging, self-indulgent nonsense, a complication for complication's sake, not to mention the animal abuse. It is Jodorowsky jacking himself off and yelling to the world, I am not like other artists, I am mocking other artists. It's a commentary through in Im imitation. I'm so very different and so very pure. I, for one, am over being told that this is the best that Art House has to offer. Yeah, so those um, those people didn't like this movie. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, but I, I think that people always feel strongly one way or another. Nobody's kind of like so-so on Jodorowsky, it seems <laughs> like. Most people, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there, yeah. I mean, there are people. But for the most part, the reactions you see of him are either like complete devotion, like this is my favorite filmmaker, or people fucking hate him. I mean, there are people in between. I think me and you probably fall. I was about to say, I feel like I'm as so-so as you could get on yeah. Jodorowsky. For me, when someone says, like, when someone mentions Jodorowsky, I think it's the visuals from the Holy Mountain that kind of come to mind, uh, especially those in the first half of the film when, like, we're inside the Alchemist Tower and things like that. Those are some of the most... Uh, well-known visuals of his career uh and like all these like ai generated things that we've seen on the internet in the last couple of months remember the jodorowsky's tron thing that like made the rounds a while back yeah those are all pulling their visual styles from mostly from the holy mountain some from his unmade dune project but mostly they're using the holy mountain the visuals here as a reference on that so while el topo might have made jodorowsky a celebrity a counterculture figure I think that The Holy Mountain might be his most seminal work. That doesn't mean it's his best work, but I think it's his most seminal work. Uh, and putting aside personal feelings about Jodorowsky the man, uh, Jodorowsky the filmmaker, or more accurately, I think Jodorowsky the artist, which is probably how he would consider himself, I think he's kind of firing on all cylinders here with all of his visual flourishes and mystical stylings full tilt. Now, whether that uh, resonates with you or not, I think, it comes down to the viewer because a lot of the like mystical stuff, a lot of that, a lot of the philosophy is as some of those reviews said, a little bit jumbled, but it's still a hell of an experience. I think as a film, it, it truly like a unique experience. Uh, now this was your first time seeing this Gary. Is that correct? That is correct. So you, I, I know you, you were kind of not a huge fan of El Topo. Like you, you liked the first half you liked Fondo and Lisa a little bit better, I believe. Where does this fall for you? What did you think about the Holy Mountain? What did you know about the Holy Mountain before coming into this? I literally knew nothing about the Holy Mountain before this. You'd never seen photos like stills or anything? I, I saw the photos like as I was ordering the DVD and stuff like that. But yeah. like I never, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I've, I've seen the obvious stuff about the guy in the thong like in the rainbow room or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, those. Uh, that, that's the scene that's probably the most referenced. Yeah. I don't think I'd, I'd seen much at all out of this movie. Well, what did you, how did you feel about it upon first watch then? I guess. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I got kind of nauseated too. Like some of these reviewers, but uh, <laughs> by what though? Like what, what specifically? I don't know. Maybe the Jesus shitting in a glass jar or <laughs> uh, the guy getting his balls cut off or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the 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 you didn't like the room, the the uh, collection of a thousand testicles. No, <laughs> just just balls in a jar. Maybe the old man's like 
practically suck it on a little girl's head while he pops out his glass eye. (laughs) (laughs) What about the hermaphrodite that titties turn into leopards and then spray milk all over the guy? There there was that. I mean, (laughs) at least that felt like a Tim and Eric sketch. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. I, uh, I, it's, it's tough. I like, I, I I say this legitimately, like, I feel like I'm the most so-so on Jodorowsky because like, I, I, the reviews that like talk about him, like this making no sense and this, this is meaningless or yada, yada, yada. I can't agree with that. Like, I don't, I, I, I think the dude, and especially, I mean, you know, if I went through the whole commentary just to tell you what he says about each thing, it would li- it literally took me hours to get through the commentary because I was just like, okay, wait, pause. Let me look at this. Like, and because right. there's so much shit yeah. just like piled in. What it really made me do, honestly, when I was watching this is like question how I felt about art. I feel like that's a really broad way of putting that, but like (laughs) that's very deep. It's very deep way of putting that. (laughs) I know it always makes me like, this is profound. This is the revelation that he's trying to provide. Maybe Mm -hmm. I don't Gary did. Have you reached enlightenment? (laughs) I might've reached enlightenment (laughs) because I'm watching it. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm watching it, I'm like, this fucking edge Lord is back at it. He's like, just throwing shit on screen. And then even when, the first time watching it through when I'm trying to tell myself, no, he's got meaning, you know, he's got meaning. What's the meaning? Let's what, let's, let's try to trace the progression here of what's happening. And even then I'm like, this fucking guy has like, he's just obsessed with religions, you know? And and so like, it's like, Oh, I get that. Like, I, I love stuff. I've got like a little Buddha back here and I, I grew up Christian and, you know, and I don't hate religion. I'm not even like a person who's like uh, aggressively atheist or something, you know, like I, I think there's advantages to ha- be had and like all of these. So it's like part of part of me is like, I get it. He's like into all of these things. He's like trying to combine it. And like he's throwing in all these symbols, all this religious iconography and into these things. But he's like saying it's not necessarily in those things it's like you can find enlightenment in yourself you can i don't anyway god i feel like i could go on about this for an hour but i'm not gonna do it i'm just (laughs) gonna say i never look at his stuff and think that it's meaningless or he doesn't have a point to it i don't know how i feel about him sometimes it's easy to just default to the guy's a fucking perv himself and so fuck him but as an artist as the art it's like, this is not my go-to stuff that I want to see all the time. Yeah. And I think that some of it's extreme for extreme sake. I can believe that. I can believe. But then also, he knew that going in. And so it's like, fuck, he's so frustrating. Because it's just like, he knows what he's doing. I think he mm-hmm. knows what he's doing. And I think he's smart. I just, uh, I don't know. It's like, so So again, just to, to try to put a bow on it of all that nonsense I just said is that <laughs> he he bothers me because I think he is an edgelord still and his bullshit that he tells like his stories that he tells about the making of the film and all that it seems like he's a guy who's read a lot of books who's just trying to throw it all up on a, on a screen and like all that but there is a narrative there is like an actual coherent story oh, sure. yeah as as he's going through it so it's like 
fuck, who am I to say that this guy's art is not legit? You know, like, yeah. how can I say that? I, who, you know, like the guy clearly has a purpose for what he's done here. And so, yeah, anyway. I mean, all art is subjective, I think. And, and that's something you have to think about when you're talking about movies. I mean, especially movies that are made to be art. And that's not every movie. Not every movie is attempting to be art. When I go see Fast 10, I'm not going to go into that thinking it's trying to be high art. Although it may achieve that, who knows? Uh, but that's not what all these all movies are trying to be. A lot of movies are just trying to be entertaining. Uh, Jodorowsky is an artist who is making art, and art, good art, should not be loved by everybody. I don't think. I think part of the power of good art is that it can be shocking or in your face or divisive. Um, now, when we talked about El Topo. One thing that I talked about a little bit was how that movie was kind of a product of its times. Uh, El Topo, you know, as I mentioned before, is like it's about half a good movie. Uh, the The second half gets a little boring to me. Uh, but I don't. I also don't have the benefit of having seen it during its initial run. And I think a large part of why El Topo became the cult sensation that it was is because it was the perfect film to be released at the time that it was released. Uh, it was very much a product of its time uh, when the late 60s, early 70s, when the counterculture was in full swing. Uh, if it had been released five years earlier or five years later, I don't think it would have had as big of an impact. And similarly, I think that the Holy Mountain is very much a product of its time. This was a time in history. This is just a couple years after El Topo when Western esotericism was being explored in ways that it never really had before. And Jodorowsky having been steeped in esotericism for years, was kind of the perfect vessel to put these ideas on screen. He wasn't doing it because it was the trendy thing to do at the time. You know, this was, he he is, for all his good and bad about the, this guy, he is genuine in his beliefs. Like, he's not doing this stuff, I don't think, as a way to necessarily, like, just be weird for weird sake, you know, to like get people's attention. I think that's who he is. I really, I really truly do. Um, and I do think that this is that the Holy mountain is kind of a culmination of what Jodorowsky had been doing with the panic movement since the early sixties. Uh, so as a reminder, for, we talked about it during our Fondo and Liss episode, but the panic movement, which was founded by Jodorowsky, uh, Fernando Arabal and Roland Topor, it was this kind of like art collective that created violent, surreal, avant-garde works, uh, everything from stage plays to novels, to music and film with the aim to, as Arabal put it, release destructive energies in search of peace and beauty. And so their works were purposely kind of shocking and in your face. Uh, they were, they were designed that way. And the Holy mountain is kind of the embodiment of everything that that movement stood for, as well as arguably the most artistically successful piece of the movement. Uh, and it served as kind of a send off for the panic movement because Jodorowsky would disband the panic movement that same year. So Arabal released a book called La Panique. And when he released that Jodorowsky saw that as kind of like, this is every, we've said everything we need to say with this. So it's, it's hard, you know, when you talk about this movie, it's, it's one of those movies that I feel like watching it 50 years later, it doesn't have that quite quite the same impact as it would have if you'd seen it at the time because it is very much a product of its time. And it's a movie that benefits, I think, from knowing 
the context in which it was originally seen. Do you know it's funny that you say that? Because I was watching it, but I was putting it there. Like, I felt like as I was watching it, that's exactly where my brain was. It's like, you know, I I could see John Lennon being behind this. Sure, yeah. You know, like George Harrison potentially wanted to start. This is the Beatles after. I mean, this is pretty much at the end of the Beatles run. So they've gone like full fucking weirdos you know at this point or whatever and uh it it, it feels like the stuff that john lennon would be approaching with like his solo stuff or whatever you know you know so it Mm -hmm. it felt like in that time period it's like this is for that that part of culture this would have been a big deal this is this is that spiritual enlightenment enlightenment thing yeah i mean it, it makes sense that it would have caught on with that counterculture at the time uh, now, of course, this kind of touches on what you were saying, but we you kind of have to ask the question, oh, what does it all mean? I mean, that's a loaded question, but that's what a lot of people are trying to do when they watch this movie. And like I said with El Topo, trying to decipher what each and every thing that Jodorowsky is throwing on screen, what, what all it means is kind of a fool's errand. <laughs> the Holy Mountain is... And I think it's primarily about the experience of watching it. Uh, it's about how the visuals, uh, all the symbols that he's throwing, combined with the soundscape, which I think the we haven't talked about. The, I think the music in this is pretty outstanding, uh, which was partially written by Jodorowsky as well. But I think it's all about how all of that combined makes the viewer feel. You know, it's it's more of an emotional or visceral experience than strictly like an intellectual one. Whereas someone like David Lynch for to, to you know reference probably the most popular uh surreal quote unquote filmmaker. Uh he, you know, David Lynch will use surrealistic touches as a dramatic device, you know, they're, where they're kind of weird things will happen, but they're intertwined within the plot of the film. Uh, a lot of the stuff that Jodorowsky does in this movie and in his other ones as well, but especially in this one don't really have any impact on the film's plot, like the scene that you referenced earlier of the soldiers, the the men dancing together, that they're just like walking by and they see this party where there's a band playing and there's all these people dancing and it's all, it's a, it's all men, just a soldier dancing with like a civilian. Uh, now, Jodorowsky in the commentary will explain to you what that means, but it has no, nothing to do with the plot of the movie at all. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I, I Sorry, I, I know David Lynch and him have some crossover, and Lynch is apparently a fan as well, you know. But it's like I always feel like with Lynch, there's still like a movie happening. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and and like with Jodorowsky, it feels like like there was that one nap review that I read that like the guy was like, at least I have, you know, the uh, courtesy to not share my dreams with everyone, <laughs> and it's like and, and that is how. Jodorowsky stuff comes across. It's like a fucking dream. Like yeah. somebody's just writing out the thing they had a dream about last night. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I see that. And uh, I mean, but like you said, there is a plot, but there are just a lot of elements that aren't connected to the plot at all that he's throwing in there because they mean something to him, I guess. Uh, and you mentioned also before the film's symbolism being steeped in religious iconography. I mean, the thief is clearly like a supposed to be a, doppelganger of jesus christ uh i mean we see him uh he he's like they create a a a plaster mold based on him and they turn it into a crucifix you know uh and then we later see him eating 
the face of one of those which what the what does that mean i don't know what that means like i don't have it's a made out of clue. almond paste and on the dvd you can get the recipe for it if you yeah want. so if if you want to create your own edible christ <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think the i don't you know you can try to think of what all those things mean but i don't think the film warrants uh, or i don't think the the film necessarily lends itself to literal analysis like that which is what a lot of people want to do uh, with all movies, not just with these, but with all movies, I think they want to be like, oh, yes, I know exactly what that means. Sometimes you can have an idea of what it means, but whether you're right or not, in the end, doesn't really matter because it can mean whatever the hell you want it to mean. And I think that's how Jodorowsky would probably want it is for you to find what, what it means to you, the viewer, because it's a personal experience. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's the answer to the question I was about to ask, which is like, one of the things that kept bothering me is like, he's talking through the commentary or like interviews about, I make movies to change the world. And like, this is going to like evolve mankind or whatever shit he says. And then I'm like, who's, who do you think is watching this? And, (laughs) And like, like, who do you think is watching this and it's just going to, like, all of a sudden trigger something and be like, fuck it, enlightened. I'm here. <laughs> right, here and, I am. Know, I've like, arrived. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, are do you really think that, like, people are just going to watch this and be like, what the fuck is this guy on? Like, right. what is happening? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you got to also remember that the, the, the dude has an ego uh, the size of Texas, you know, <laughs> like he, so he, of course, he's going to think that his, his movie is going to change the world. Uh, you want to talk about the ending? Uh, sure. Because uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty divide. Well, first of all, before we get to that, I, I want to say, like, as far as, like, the movie itself, I I like this movie a lot. I think this is his best movie that we've talked about so far. Uh, I do think that visually that first half especially is absolutely stunning. Uh, keep in mind, Jodorowsky, he is the director, the writer. He co-wrote the music. He co-edited the film. He is the set designer and the costume designer. Like, that is incredibly impressive. Uh, And for the fact that this movie was made for less than a million dollars for it to look as good as it is is also very impressive. Uh, My favorite part of the movie is actually the first 20, 25 minutes or so where there's no dialogue. Uh, The the thief's journey to the tower and through the tower. Uh, I think that that's the best part of the whole movie. I think it's some of the strongest filmmaking that Jodorowsky's that we've seen from Jodorowsky so far. Um, it only gets ruined when Jodorowsky's character opens his fucking mouth, which is symbolic in <laughs> itself. I think <laughs> uh, that ending, if you're talking about the part where they're all sitting around the table. Yeah. Uh, I, I literally wrote down like, as I was watching it, cause I'll just keep my little, a little notebook with me. And I wrote down, what if Mel Brooks was a Hari Krishna? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, but this was before uh, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Uh, by a year or so, right? So, um, well, okay. The ending. Well, to get to that ending, I think that I think that this movie has some of the same problems that El Topo does, and that it's very like the first half of it is a lot more interesting. Than the than the last act, I think the stuff in the middle is interesting, where where we're getting introduced to the nine different travelers. You know, uh, it's like these little short films that are kind of fun. Uh, right. Fun, fun's maybe not the word, but interesting. I think they're all pretty interesting. I do think that they're it, it runs a little longer than it should. The movie in general is probably a little longer than it needs to be. 
Uh, and it does lose some steam in the second half and it drags a little bit through the middle, but uh, not to, not in the same way that, not to the extent that El Topo did. I don't think, I think it still is pretty interesting and it didn't, I didn't like, it didn't lose me the way that El Topo sometimes loses me. Uh, but that been. ending, that ending is pretty, is kind of divisive uh, and was even at the time of its release. But I, uh, you know, I kind of love the fourth wall break for, I just like when filmmakers do that. I don't know why, but it always like, Makes me happy when, when filmmakers break the fourth wall. Uh, but like most of the rest of the film, I can't really tell you what Jodorowsky's trying to say <laughs> by doing that. Uh, he, he says like goodbye to the Holy Mountain or he says to say goodbye to the Holy Mountain. Real life awaits us like, OK, but what are you what is he saying there? Is he saying we need to apply the morals of the film to our real lives or is he telling us to say goodbye, not to the Holy Mountain, like the literal Holy Mountain in the film, but to the Holy Mountain, the film itself, uh, reminding us that after all this crazy stuff that you've been trying to figure out for the last two hours, uh, it doesn't really matter. Just get out there and live your life. Say goodbye to the Holy Mountain. Just forget it. It doesn't matter. You've got a real life to worry about. I kind of like that interpretation, uh, although it doesn't seem very in line with Jodorowsky's way of thinking, uh, but it's kind of a fun interpretation that I've made for myself for that ending where he's like, all right, goodbye to the Holy Mountain. None of this shit means anything. Just whatever you do when you go out of the theater is what matters. I kind of like that interpretation. I also like that, uh, I, I like to think that this inspired the ending of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, where they break the fourth wall and they're all of a sudden on a film set because that movie came out just like two years after this to 75. Uh, and there's, you know that some of the Pythons were Jodorowsky fans. There's no way that there's no way that Terry Gilliam didn't see this movie in the theater and love it. You know, right? So. <laughs> um, it, it is cool that he uses like the the basic like elements of some like that the 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 bare bolds of a how am I trying to say this? Like the bare bolds of a story that like make you intrigued, like even in El Topo, like the guy mm -hmm. like going to meet these like different tasks or whatever. You yeah. know, it's the same as like Hercules or sure. uh, any the number Odyssey. of heroes, journal journeys. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and then this one is just yeah, like it, it's like all these stories of these different people. I do like that he breaks it up with like these different things. It's just I think he throws like so much shit in there. Like it's a little overwhelming. Yeah, and a little muddied. It, now I did read one person uh, talk about this that uh, I think it was like a film historian that mentioned this and I, and I had never thought of it this way. Fuck him for making me think of it this way. But <laughs> he was talking about how it was as though Jodorowsky had predicted cinema today where the visuals would overwhelm the narrative that like it was more about how much he could hit you with visually instead of like how much the story mattered and i was like son of a bitch like what <laughs> <laughs> like i i, I refuse mean, to listen to you sir <laughs> <laughs> i mean jitterowski was he he was forward thinking which was proved later with we'll talk about it in a minute but with with his failed dune project i mean so there's stuff there's stuff in that that had never been seen in film before that are like cliche now in science fiction. So I mean he he may have been more forward thinking than we thought, you know. Yeah, it's 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 tough, man, because it, it's like 
I, I really am sitting here and, and as we're talking, like, I don't know what to think. I still don't know what to think about him. Like it, it, it I mean, it's easy to argue the guy's a piece of shit. That's, that's fine. We can argue that. Or we don't even need to argue. He is. Um, <laughs> no, no, I just, uh, it's, I, I think that he's a really good filmmaker and he, you can't knock the guy for his drive and his dedication mm-hmm. and his ability to get shit done. Like mm-hmm. his, uh, he, like Sinatra said, he did it his way. Yeah. He, uh, you know, that song about Jodorowsky. I think so. Yeah. I thought so. And at the same time, I'm like, if your true purpose is to, and I already kind of said this, but if your true purpose is to enlighten the world, then are you really achieving that purpose with this film? If if he didn't add that in, he was just like, I just need to get everything I felt on screen. Then like, uh, you, you definitely couldn't argue that. Like, no, you did. Oh, you, <laughs> you you sure did. You got it all, butthole and everything. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't know. It's it's like because because even some of the story, you're like like with the butthole or with the ball chopping and all this other stuff. Like some of the ways he like portrays things, you're like, fuck, man, did you? Did you have, have to go to that hard? This? <laughs> yeah, did you have to go this hard? <laughs> and there's some really questionable stuff too, man. Like the uh I get like kind of with the girls with the prostitutes, uh the little girl and mm-hmm. the guys like kissing on her head. That was an uncomfortable scene. Yeah. But I'm like, all right, maybe it's just like talking about like, you know, we're taking childhood and exploiting it and like all of this other stuff. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, the little girl is oh. one of the prostitutes as well. Um, yeah, you know, she's dressed the same as them, and I think that that actress's mother was one of the other. Yeah, I think so. Well, the other problem is, it's like you know, then you've got stuff that happens, like uh, you know, there was the whole controversy apparently with like Brontus was in this movie, like in a in a part with uh with that. I I think it was that same little girl, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Did oh, the, from the, the deleted scene. Yeah, and they're naked yeah. together. Yeah. And... Well, she's naked. He's not. Oh yeah, that's um, right. She's naked. And I don't know if like, it was I don't know if it was Brontus or not, but it was definitely another like I child looked at a couple boy. of places that say it is Brontus. So I don't Yeah, know, but... I mean you you only see her from like the back, but um and it's it was weird... like used as the German poster. It was used movie. as the poster in Germany, yeah, which is very strange. But uh yeah, they're like laying in what looks like a church and there's a crucifix made of televisions in front of them i think marilyn uh, manson loves that yeah you know he yeah. used that i mean yeah marilyn manson loves <laughs> this guy which is not a great thing it, it doesn't shine a lot of great light on jodorowsky's character that that he inspires <laughs> marilyn manson uh knowing what especially knowing what we know about manson now but uh yeah uh i mean he absolutely took that from from that that movie from this movie yeah it's i don't know it's just it's weird there's 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 like little things like that that still like kind of bother you about of course yeah i mean especially after our discussion on el topo with all the shit like i'm Mm -hmm. i feel like i'm on like high alert for like all right what the fuck are you doing right now right that scene with the little girl like kind of bugs me how many naked kids there are in general in this movie like start to bug me and then like it's uh yeah i I don't know anything with series we have we've met our naked little boy quota for the podcast for a while i think <laughs> yeah you, i mean i i i know that society's in a different place now than it was then so like you know you, you get a little uh, i was in the backyard last yesterday and uh our dog was barking at the fence for the house behind us 
And it was because there was a little girl playing over there and and Willow, she was barking at this little girl and the little girl's like trying to talk to her. And I had shoes on and Jennifer didn't have shoes on and she was standing there. She was like, go get her. And I was like, okay. But then the girl started talking to the dog and I was like, I don't know, man. It's kind of weird if I walk over there with yeah. like the little girl at the fence. I'm, like, I'm like, maybe I'm overly paranoid. I think you're. I, I think you're being a little over paranoid. You are allowed to talk to children. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> is it creepy if like I don't know? I also think about like, have you ever heard that like Brian Posey bit where he's just like, if you look like me, you can't <laughs> yeah. get away with certain stuff. He's like, he's like, there's just things I don't get to say, like or things I don't get to do, like I can't dig in my backyard at night <laughs> he's like i don't get to walk by people and go like you kid <laughs> that was a good brian Posehn voice by the way thank Gary. you thank you uh, so <laughs> well before we start wrapping things up on this one gary you listened to the commentary were there any other fun facts you came across well, let's look and see. Yeah, I did definitely make some notes from the commentary. Uh, some neat little stuff I thought were like when uh, the the guy first makes it to the rainbow room and the uh, guru, the, tower, yeah. the alchemist, like first yeah. gets off the throne and stuff. His shoes are uh, based on Frankenstein. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. He loves the Frankenstein. Pla- We've mentioned that, but the platform shoes. Yeah. He was just real into Frankenstein, and that's why he wanted to finally get his Frankenstein reference in there, I guess. <laughs> randomly like in the commentary he just is talking and he starts going off on the buddha and freud uh yeah he he talks about like how when the when the thief is being transformed he's like both are both of them are against being bored he says uh, freud says the greatest sin is to be bored he says when you're bored you create an ego that wants to be the universe it wants to be god but can't be buddha says apart from illness old age and death being bored is the greatest tragedy because to be bored is to enter pain he wanted to be freed from the chains of being bored and reborn damn it they are both wrong I am against psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Stop it. It's wonderful <laughs> to be bored. It's wonderful to be ill because illness makes you uh, becomes your master. It's wonderful to grow old because it makes you wiser. It's wonderful to die because being immortal would be boring. Wow, that <laughs> That's is a thing. Yeah. He actually admits at one point, by the way, when they do the first little tarot card thing, yeah. he does say he's been studying tarot since 23 he says he was still learning it at the time, and he didn't quite understand it yet, even when he made the Holy Mountain. So mm-hmm. the paintings that are around them in the circle, he said, he made those. Like, they were his own designs. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, and he says, I was pretentious. I tried to create my own tarot. I should not have done that. It's sacred art. I didn't quite understand the tarot when I made this film. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't understand it at all. but i was like wow well at least he has some wow there's some humble in general yeah yeah how about that (laughs) um since we had the conversation about art and how i feel about art i do have this quote from the commentary uh before that though i did not know this but the character of bobby uh, who's the redhead that the uh, the guy who is uh, is it Venus who's got the factory with the women or he gets them all pregnant and stuff? Yeah, yeah. The first guy, I, Bobby, was apparently a, a transsexual, and it was part of the San Francisco uh, coquettes. He says it's the most beautiful transsexual he'd ever seen in his life. He had to have her. 
Let's say put her in the film. Anyway, uh, she gets covered in the boss's sperm and it's made of little hearts because that's oh, that's what, Yeah, I remember that scene. She pours them yeah. all in her mouth. Yeah. <laughs> boss's sperm is little hearts. It's so romantic. Wow. How romantic. Wow. <laughs> uh, but he uh, has this quote. <clears throat> I always wonder what the purpose of art is. Are artists the gestures of society? It's a bit like smoking. People smoke to enjoy themselves, but it is an entertainment that kills. When you go to the cinema and are treated like a 12-year-old child, you have a good time, but you come out more stupid each time. Cinema is making audiences stupid. It's treating them like babies. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to wake people up. I wanted to wake up a society that's been ill since the Middle Ages. I must make films that heal. Art is good when it heals, when it's therapeutic. I wanted my films to have an emotional impact on people to cause an unconscious reaction. So people would either leave the theater changed, charged, or with a new energy to leave with some kind of revelation. Something it had to be more than just entertainment, after which you are a stupid child. What do you think um, Jodorowsky thinks of the Marvel movies? <laughs> that is literally what I thought. And I actually have <laughs> something for that. Hold on. <laughs> uh, I don't think we mentioned Don Cherry who helped compose no. the movie with Jodorowsky. He talks about, he he came, he was looking for spiritual musicians mm -hmm. and he came across, uh, he saw him like dressed as sort of a cloud uh, with a suit that was like pieced together. He said, uh, Don Cherry's wife, Don Cherry is a jazz musician, fusion, fusion musician, mm -hmm. uh, uh, plays a uh, trumpet, I believe a broken trumpet. So this is more just his style. He said yeah. that his wife was Swedish uh an avant-garde artist and uh all of their possessions came from like rubbish bins in new york and so they just found free stuff in the trash basically and that was everything mm. they had and all of his clothes for performances were made from bits and pieces of stuff that she would put together for him to wear you know he invented earlier i mentioned this he invented uh apparently painting your nails black for dudes <laughs> yeah uh he also says in the modern art scene, uh, which were all designed, by the way, by uh, a Mexican artist named uh, Phil Guerres. He he had him design all the pieces to be like put together with humans. He was pissed off with him when the movie came out uh, because he said they only he worked so hard they only got a few seconds of screen time, and <laughs> he was like he did not understand that these would be seen for an eternity. Yeah, that's uh, showbiz, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he said, I also made fun of modern art in the scene. I invented painting with the buttocks. Uh oh, wow. No one else had ever done that. Huh? <laughs> right. Congrats. Um, yeah. So, you know, good for him. Yeah. Uh, so back to what we were talking about just a second ago, the uh, scene where they're talking about the Peruvian kids or the, the or the kids that are like changing and stuff. And then the blah, blah, blah. He talks about the Peruvian revolution that would come later. He said he foresaw that. That's why he made this whole scene. So maybe he did, maybe he did. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, he has a quote here. This goes in different places, but here it goes. Peru's problems appeared in this film long before they happened. The world is very ill. The world needs to heal the seas, the rivers, the environment, society, money. It must heal itself. We're all ill. The artist must react. The artist must be a healer. Cinema must be sort of revelation. Audiences should not identify with hero 
or a hero who is generally a pervert. James Bond is a pervert. Superman is a pervert. Superman. Imagine him with a woman. He would have an ejaculation so big that it would destroy her body, exit through her brain, and destroy an entire building. Superman is a being who can't even make love because he would kill his partner. Well, what if it was Wonder Woman? Yeah, there's that. So, <laughs> too bad you weren't uh, you were hosting the commentary. <laughs> Hard to argue against the James Bond point, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And then the only other part from the commentary that I really, really loved was uh, he well, he, talk, he talks about the, the I forget again which planet they are, but the guy who's laying in the van and has the weird lady that's like dancing over with the green hair and the, she's kind of heavier set. And, the older uh, she, lady who's on the giant, who's on the really tall toilet. Glad you mentioned that. So, <laughs> uh, so she has no belly button, which was part of the thing that, uh, he loved about her. The actress does not have a belly button. Does not have a belly button. How is that biologically possible? She has a scar there. So I think some sort of surgery must have happened. Okay. At some point. Uh, he said she was some person that uh, just now that we're talking about it, he, the guy in the scene was a guy who tried to seduce him at a bar one night. Uh, and so he liked him and he pulled off his wig at one point and he had bald head. He was just like, I love this guy. He's great. I want him. And then she <laughs> was like a person who was constantly around Mexican studios, like trying to get extra work. And everybody thought she was super weird. But one day he talked to her cause she had green hair. And then she showed him, she even had a pubic wig that was also green. Yep, little, so, big old Merkin. Yeah. So, oh yeah, I forgot there's a name for that. Yeah, it's a murder. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so he hired her. Anyway, so they heard that. Then there's the tall toilet. Mm-hmm. And he says during that scene, quote, I loved building that tall toilet. That's my golden dream, to sit on a toilet with my legs dangling. That's the perfect mystical toilet. I thought that the force of falling excrement could create free electricity. If you raise the toilet and shit, the turds generate electricity when they fall. If all mankind shitted from a two meter high toilet, we would have all of the electricity we wanted. Oh, let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs cold fusion? (laughs) I was like, Uh, wow, Hodo, you just like, you're just busting out some hits. (laughs) (laughs) If you just like pulled any of his quotes, like, and, presented them to somebody without any context like what <laughs> they would what think- are you talking about this had context there was a lady shitting on the tall toilet it well, still sounds true. fucking weird like, what, are you, what are you talking about dude how does she get up there is there a little you're ladder? trying to make electricity on the movie set what are you saying i remember when i was watching that scene and she like yells at him to um th- about there being a hole in the in the ceiling which is just like a window and he immediately like gets out of the bathtub and starts hammering at it. Uh, like what he, he pulls out a hammer and a board. I was like, why did he have a hammer by the bathtub? And then I thought to myself with everything else going on in this scene, <laughs> why is that my concern? <laughs> that's the one thing that that's, bothers you. That's the thing that bothers me. <laughs> he said, he said when this movie got made that, uh, one of the things I love from him is he said at the end, this was made with a free mind and not for money, which isn't good for the industry. They didn't like that, but it's okay. I could wait. 
30 years is nothing. I'm prepared to live over a hundred. <laughs> so he is, uh, you know, he was yeah. cool with it. He was. Well, after he'd finished the Holy Mountain, Jodorowsky had hoped to make a uh, pirate film for children called Mr. Blood and Miss Bones, which sounds like, you know, any other kid's movie title, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Alan Klein had no interest in a PG-rated family film, and instead he proposed that Jodorowsky film an adaptation of Pauline Regis notorious novel, Story of O, which I'd heard of, but I didn't know anything about it. So I looked it up on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia describes it as a tale of female submission involving a beautiful Parisian fashion photographer named O, who is taught to be constantly available for oral, vaginal, and anal intercourse, offering herself to any male who belongs to the same secret society as her lover. She is regularly stripped, blindfolded, chained, and whipped. Her anus is widened by increasingly large plugs, her labium is pierced, and her buttocks are branded. You had if you had pitched this to me as like, oh hey, this is the next movie we're talking about from Jodorowsky, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds yes, about right. Uh, Jodorowsky rejected the project because he felt it was too commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, no, that's way too mainstream for me. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, it was eventually adapted by a director named Just Jakin, who was the French director of the original Emmanuel. Uh, came out in 1975 and was pretty poorly received. So Klein, Alan Klein was kind of, he was angry when Jodorowsky refused to make Story of O because he had already promised this adaptation to various investors, which was, I mean, that's, that's your problem, dude. But in retaliation, Klein made El Topo and the Holy Mountain to which he held the rights completely unavailable to the public for more than 30 years. Uh, that's why in 2007, when the DVD uh, release of, uh, of both of those films, when these Films were both released on DVD. That's why that was such a big deal. Because for years you could see Fondo and Lee's, you could see some of his, uh, you could see Santa Sangre, but these movies were at, they were never released on VHS. They were never released on any sort of video. Never released in theaters at all for those thirty years. They Alan Klein just held them hostage, basically out of spite. <laughs> well, again, you know, and not to jump in too early here, but that also feels like the kind of thing that. Um, well, like I often, I feel like we've had this conversation about censorship a lot of times. But like when you when you try to like completely shut something down, sometimes it just makes it like stew in people's brains mm -hmm. even more. Because these films and, are notorious, and people like film people knew about them, but they had no way to see them, so they were building them up in their mind for decades. Yeah, I had not heard this story until uh, that film historian thing I mentioned earlier, where he he was talking about you know whatever the predicting like overwhelming you with the narrative or the visuals and blah 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 but even one of the parts of that discussion was he was saying that you know he remembers being just anxious to see the holy mountain again mm -hmm. like he couldn't stop thinking about it because he didn't know he had seen the holy mountain but you couldn't just go pick up the holy mountain and watch right. it and so it was just like building in his brain that the holy mountain was this thing and so I mean, maybe that's part of it, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, after that, Jodorowsky became involved in an ambitious attempt to adapt Frank Herbert's Dune to the big screen. Uh, his Dune film was to star Jodorowsky's son, Brontus, as Paul Atreides, and it was uh, going to feature performances by Orson Welles, Salvador Dali, Gloria Swanson, David Carradine, Udo Kier, and Mick Jagger. I mean, uh, I'd watch it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, originally, the film was to be scored by uh, the groundbreaking electronic music pioneer Carl Heinz Stockhausen uh, and English experimental rock rock group Henry Cow and a French prog rock band called Magma, with each band providing the sounds for various planets in the film. Like each planet was going to have their own soundtrack, which is a fun concept. Uh, later on, it was just the plan was changed and Pink Floyd was going to score the film. So Jodorowsky set up a pre-production unit in Paris consisting of uh, British artist Chris Foss, French comic book illustrator John Gerard, better known as Mobius, and H.R. Geiger. Foss, who specialized in sci-fi novel covers, he started designing the film Spaceships and Hardware, while Mobius began designing creatures and characters for the film. Uh, and then Mobius also storyboarded the entire film. Like Jodorowsky basically says, Mobius was my camera. I told him what I wanted to see, and he, like, every single moment of the film was storyboarded by Mobius. And then H.R. Giger, what did we decide on when we did Alien? Giger or Geiger? I don't remember. Uh, Geiger, Giger, Jodorowsky, Hodorowsky, whatever. Uh, But Geiger designed uh, Harkonnen Castle based on Mobius' storyboards. Now, if all this sounds a little familiar... And maybe because we touched on this a bit during our Dan O'Bannon series back whenever that was, a couple years ago, I guess. It was one of our early series here on the podcast. But uh, impressed by O'Bannon's special effects work on John Carpenter's Dark Star, Jodorowsky hired O'Bannon to be the special effects supervisor on Dune. And O'Bannon was flown out to Paris where he worked on the film for six months. So by late 1976... Uh, More than a year after Dune had been announced, the film's American backers pulled out. Uh, Frank Herbert traveled to to Paris to find that $2 million of the film's initial $9.5 million budget had already been spent in pre-production alone, and that Jodorowsky's script, which Herbert says was the size of a phone book, would have resulted in a 14-hour film. Now, if you want to Really dive into all of this. I would highly recommend the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, you get to see a lot of the work that they did on the film. I mean, they they got as far as they worked on it for two and a half years or something total. But you get to see uh, a lot of the work that Mobius did on the film. You get to see costumes. They constructed a couple of costumes. You get to see a lot of Chris Foss's work on the film. Uh, they interview Chris Foss throughout it. They interview Geiger. Geiger used uh, some of his designs were later used in like that Harkonnen castle. It's in Prometheus. Like that design is used in Prometheus. Almost uh. exact. Uh, so it, it's really interesting because, you know, even though this, Dune is one of the most famous unmade films ever made. I mean, it would have been incredibly ambitious. This was before Star Wars, keep in mind. So this could have changed. If this had come out, especially with the stars that he wanted in it, like it could have changed the course of blockbuster filmmaking if this had come out before Star Wars. Like it literally could have changed the course of, of how movies look now. But it never, never got made. The money fell through. It was honestly, it was just far too ambitious. There were things that he could not, that he had planned that would have almost been impossible to do in, you know, the the mid 1970s. But all was not lost. Uh, When he returned back to the U.S., Dan O'Bannon started working on several screenplays, one of which called Memory would eventually be be released as Ridley Scott's Alien. And O'Bannon was largely responsible for getting Chris Foss and H.R. Geiger involved in that project. Uh, Chris Foss, of course, he designs like the Nostromo, the the spacesuits and all that. And 
you all know what H.R. Geiger did on Alien, I'm sure. Uh, so the rest is history. But I think it's safe to say that had it not been for Dune kind of imploding, we might not have ever gotten Alien. I mean, it's, it's, there's a very good chance that it would have never happened. Uh, and we may not have gotten Star Wars, honestly. If uh, if this had come out, Star Wars might may not have ever had a chance to get made uh, because it, it kind of would have done what Star Wars was doing, but several years earlier. I hate thinking about that. <laughs> that alternate history yeah he's just got so much like fucking jodorowsky here is just he's just right in the thick of it like he, he's he, he he dictated the future of cinema i mean honestly like as much as you can say like el topo changed film history by by creating the midnight movie the most impactful thing that jodorowsky was ever involved in in my opinion, is Dune uh, because of what it spawned and what it could have created, like as far as like the way films were seen, like had it existed, it would have been like unlike anything. It would have been like another 2001 A Space Odyssey. It would have been like un unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. Uh, and then, you know, afterwards, it's the things that they created for Dune continued like to reverberate through films for decades and still are honestly so after dune i mean jodorowsky he says that that experience changed his life uh he was obviously he was initially disappointed and bitter about the implosion of the movie but it was on dune that he met his greatest creative partner which is mobius uh, with whom he would create the hugely influential comic book the end call using many of the unused concepts from dune uh, so a lot of the drawings and stuff that Mobius had done for Dune got recreated in the end call. And that comic, which has its roots very deep in the tarot and its symbols, and I'm reading the end call right now. It's in, it's it's very, very good. I, I fully admit that I don't understand all of the, like the references to the tarot, but they're used in a way where if you don't, you can still enjoy the story, you know. Uh, but that was originally published in installments in the magazine uh, Metal Herlant, who, which you know, if you've listened to our heavy metal episode in that Dan O'Bannon series, you know, would later become known as the magazine Heavy Metal here in the U.S. Uh, and the end call is generally considered one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Uh, the the copy I have, Gary, has an introduction, a foreword written by Brian Michael Bendis, who all he does is gush about how comic books would not look the same today if it were not for the influence of this this specific graphic novel. And it would go on to inspire uh, not just comic books, but movies, Akira, Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner, the, the the sets in Blade Runner are straight out of the end call. Uh, the Matrix, I mean, like William Gibson, stuff like that, like all of that stuff has its kind of... It, it, it has their origins in this comic book from, you know, the night, the mid seventies is when they started writing it. Uh, even depictions of like uh, the, you know, the planet Coruscant, that's a full city planet in the star Wars prequels. That's very much out of the end call. Uh, so it like it, you know, we talk about Dune being this major influential thing. It's not just because of like alien uh, becoming out of that, but all the stuff, because Dune imploded, the end call was created. And because the end call was created, all these other movies got their inspiration from it. Like it's, it's pretty incredible how much was inspired by that project now Jodorowsky did complete one other film during the 70s although it wasn't released until November of 1980 and it's a movie called Tusk uh, it was described by Variety as 
a G-rated epic about the entwined fate of an English girl and a rogue elephant born in India on the same day. Uh, shot completely in the South Indian state of uh, Kamataka at a cost of about $5 million, so higher than any budget he had had already. The movie featured 110 live elephants, uh, and Tusk was scheduled to open in the summer of 1980 in the U.S., but it was never released. When it was reviewed at Filmex, Variety described it as, quote, a two-ton turkey, grandiose, pretentiously simple, totally inconsistent, going on to say that turgid B.O. looms. <laughs> so I have not seen <laughs> Tusk. It is has never been released in the U.S. on home video or any other form. It is. I did find a kind of shitty-looking copy on YouTube, uh, but I haven't gotten around to watching it, uh, mostly because everything I've read about this movie, including from like people who are huge Jodorowsky fans, say that it sucks like even the book the seven lives of alejandro jodorowsky that I've, I've used as a reference on some of these episodes who which is mostly praising a lot of you know his work even in there they're like yeah this movie was kind of like a major failure so it doesn't really make me want to you know sit down for two hours with it so for the next several years after tusk jodorowsky would primarily focus on his comic book work primarily on the end call i mean the end call ran for almost a decade i think uh, and it has spawned its own sequels years later. Uh, but he would return to filmmaking in 1989 with the Mexican-Italian co-production, uh, which will be the subject of the fourth and final episode in our Jodorowsky series. The movie we're talking about on our next episode is Santa Sangre. And that'll be it. We'll be done with Jodorowsky. Santa Sangre, I think, is maybe one you might like a little bit better, Gary, if I'm 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 predicting. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I uh, I bought uh, as you were telling me about the in call. I bought it on Amazon. Yeah. So <laughs> nice <laughs> technology. <laughs> uh, it's really good. The in call is really good. I, I would like to read. I, I mean, I haven't finished it yet, but I it's really good so far. And uh, I mean, you have to read it like it was done in installment. So like very very short. You know, a few pages before it kind of abruptly ends and goes on to the next episode. Uh, but once you get used to that. It, it it's easier to follow because it, it does like you're like just getting into it and all of a sudden that issue ends and it goes on to the next one because it was going you know in short five or six pages at a time and heavy metal but uh it's definitely worth reading it's really cool i mean the the visuals alone mobius's art is incredible he's one of the best that's ever done comic books i mean he's incredible that's exciting uh santa sangre uh i, I did read a little bit about that you know, it's uh, another person that uh, Jodorowsky really loves is Todd Browning. Uh, yeah. Todd Browning and Freaks is mm -hmm. one of his movies, but uh, he also had a movie called The Unknown, and yeah. Santa Sangre is apparently like inspired by The Unknown. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that should be a further viewing on that one. Oh, we haven't done further viewing, have we? We have not done oh, son of a bitch. Well, before we wrap things up, what would be your further viewing for the Holy Mountain, Gary? Well, I would say if you uh, search for it, uh, Lucifer Rising by Kenneth Ager yeah. from 1972 is you can get a high quality version of it on YouTube right now for free. Yeah. And maybe nice. if I ever get it together, uh, you can find it on the Cinema Stock channel when you're listening <laughs> to this. But uh, we'll see. But I do know that uh, it is available. You can watch it. And it's 
super fucking weird, but the colors and the visuals, the stuff, you could totally watch it and be like, all right. It's only about what half an hour long, right? It's yeah, a short it's like film. half an hour long. Yeah. yeah. But you could tell they're buddies. You can see yeah. why they'd be friends. Right, right. Well, <laughs> my uh my further viewing for this one is uh, a little movie called Doggy Woggies Poochie Woochies, created by Everything is Terrible. You know, Everything is Terrible. They're like they they take like the VHS uh yeah. clips and edit them together. They're I love everything that they do. But they decided they were going to make a feature-length film comprised entirely of VHS rips of uh, from dog movies, movies about dogs, scenes with dogs. Uh, but then they decided, you know what? Let's not just make a full-length movie using dog clips. Let's make it a remake of Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain solely using clips from dogs from other movies. <laughs> and And it's... I, I watched them back to back yesterday. I watched the Holy Mountain and then Doggy Walkies, Wooshy Wooshies immediately afterwards. And it oh was God. a hell of an experience. Uh, and I would recommend doing the same. It was great. You can find it. It's on. I mean, I bought it directly from Everything is Terrible's website. And they threw in a bonus disc that is two and a half hours of uh, Jerry Maguire themed content. So there's also, they might <laughs> throw in something extra for you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Doggies Walkies. Poochie Wooshies. That's my further viewing for this week. And that wraps up our episode on the Holy Mountain. Unless you have anything else to add, Gary? No, I hope you all feel inspired. I feel, I hope you, I hope you've been injected with some psycho magic. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll have to talk about psycho magic at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to watch that documentary. I've never, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to watch it. It's, uh, this is, this is by the end of this, because you listen to this podcast, you're going to be enlightened. You're going to be an evolved human being. Yeah, this is uh, all these episodes are the journey. Uh, you know, this is the like the journey that these characters take within the movies. That's what you're doing by listening to this, this series, right? I'm saying all that as though like 97 uh, percent of you didn't drop off after uh, Fondo Elise. <laughs> <laughs> I hope our listeners are a little more loyal than that, but who knows? I mean, we lost yeah. one of our co-hosts. Yeah, we did lose a co-host already, so I don't know. This uh, has been quite the journey. Maybe next week it'll just be me talking to myself here. <laughs> just a little, uh, little uh, monologue from Justin on uh, Santa Sangre. <laughs> well, I think that's all we have for this week. Until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. <laughs>